This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows Good evening and happy Father's Day. Everybody rolls. A little bit later in the program, I'm going to check in with my cousin, actually. A few weeks ago, I spoke to my niece, who was in Botswana, building a a house for uh, orphans. And uh, tonight, we'll uh, check in with my cousin, Wayne, who's getting ready to depart for uh, the western leg of uh, an interesting journey. He's going to ride a bike from Victoria, B.C. to Thunder Bay in, well, to raise awareness for mental health. Uh, and uh, she's my, my niece uh, working with uh, orphans in Botswana, my cousin. I mean, what am I doing for the world? I'm just sitting here running my mouth for a living, hopefully helping to draw uh, some attention to some important issues, but... Some people in my family doing good work, so I'll speak with my cousin uh, on the eve of his journey. Uh, but first, we're going to speak with, well, how else to describe him, but simply one of the world's top UFO investigators. And he's here to discuss his research into the history of UFO crashes, including the latest details on the controversial Roswell UFO crash, the 1950 Del Rio UFO crash, the Las Vegas UFO crash of 1962, and the first suggestions of a UFO crash back in the 19th century. In fact, when the scientific community and the government wants information and the latest evidence that we have in fact been visited by aliens, they turn to this man. Kevin Randall is, as I say, one of the foremost experts on UFOs. He's a decorated combat veteran and a lieutenant, a retired lieutenant colonel 
whose assistance sought by the government, news media, scientists. He's been writing about the UFO phenomenon for more than 25 years. His research into the Roswell UFO crash helped bring that sighting into prominence, and he has written or co-written about 100 books, including numerous books on the UFO question. His latest is Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, a history of famous incidents, conspiracies, and cover-ups. And uh, he has four college degrees, including a Ph.D. in psychology. He began studying UFOs while still a teenager, and his interest in the subject has not flagged. He's traveled the United States for more than 30 years, interviewing witnesses, investigating sightings, and searching for the answers that have eluded so many. Kevin Randall, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? It sounds like I'm in a good place, too, The Conspiracy Show. (laughs) Well, that's certainly a huge part of this issue, this 60-year-plus truth embargoes. Now, when you're compiling your information on UFO crashes, and, and are you working... Uh, I mean, I know that you interview a lot of uh, eyewitnesses, but are you also able to work from either declassified documents or classified documents that fall into your hands? I have no classified documents. Everything that I use, all the documents that I've used, have been properly declassified. But yes, we both, both ways. In fact, one of the things I did as I was putting the book together was go through the Project Blue Book files, Blue Book being the official U.S. Air Force investigation of UFOs, and I actually found a couple of cases in there that nobody really talked about that, that fit into the, the framework of the book that were UFO crashes. Both of those, well, actually one of those was probably mundane, took place in uh, Montana, probably not alien in, in its origin. The other one is, is a very interesting thing that came out of uh, Mexico and talked about uh, the, the the stuff in there was sort of that had been classified messages that talked about something coming down and being retrieved. Uh, so so there were some very interesting things in the documentation that I was able to look through. When scientists are coming to you, and and I find that intriguing that that uh, that, that uh, you would have the ear of scientists when it comes to this issue, because I, I was interviewing a, uh, a, an astrophysicist just a couple of weeks ago for a documentary on, on UFOs. Very, uh, uh, you know, warm and engaging uh, a gentleman and was willing to concede uh, that uh, life exists elsewhere in the universe and that it, m- it, it may be remotely possible that we've been visited sometime in our distant past but didn't really hold a, a lot of hope out for that aspect. But but are, are you talking to scientists maybe off the record, or they're talking to you off the record, that they're saying privately but not publicly, I believe in this stuff, yes, we're being visited? It actually depends on the scientist you're talking to. If it's someone of the stature of James Van Allen, who discovered the radiation belts, he was of such prominence, and his reputation was so solid, that he and I discussed the Tunguska case, for example, the uh, I, I believe it was probably an asteroid that blew up over Tunguska, Siberia in 1908 and uh, has been investigated by any number of scientific expeditions. So if it's someone of that stature, they're not concerned that their discussion seriously with me of UFOs is going to harm their career. If it's someone that doesn't have the stature of a James Van Allen, then, then a lot of times we're talking off the record and we're getting kind of opinions. Uh, J. Allen Hynek, who had been the consultant for Project Blue Book, did a uh, off-the-record type of 
investigation on, on astronomers who had seen stuff, what they thought of it, and that sort of thing. turned out, according to his research, that astronomers actually see UFOs at a slightly higher rate than the general population, but they're not willing to really talk about it because it could harm their careers. Uh, Clyde Tombaugh, who discovered the now dwarf planet of Pluto, had a wonderful UFO sighting over Las Cruces, New Mexico, and reported it to the to NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, when it was in existence. I've actually held the, the form he filled out in my hand and threatened to steal it as, as a, a, a document, you know, copy it and let them have the copy, and I keep the original. But they... Uh, but but he filled out the form. He got into an argument with Donald Menzel, the great uh, debunker, about this. I go with Tomba on it because he was there. He made the observations. Menzel was in Massachusetts and really wouldn't listen to what anything, anything that um, Tomba had to say. So the scientists do see him. They do report him. Oftentimes it's uh, off the record that we hear that information simply because they have to maintain their credibility, they have to maintain their um, jobs, and they don't want to jeopardize that. And we can point to any number of, of occupations where seeing a UFO is not the best career move you can make. Uh, uh, airline pilots have the similar problem. Air Force pilots had a problem like that at one point. So we can we can show this subtle uh, suppression of information, but when we talk to the people off the record, we, we get a, a little bit of a different picture. Kevin Randall, author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The, uh, I think most people would be amazed uh, at the number of, of uh, UFO crashes uh, and retrievals. Uh, most people, of course, are familiar with uh, with Roswell, which is sort of the granddaddy of them all. And a few a few people may be familiar with the uh, the Kecksburg, uh, Pennsylvania crash uh, back in '65. But but aside from that, uh, I think people would be would be shocked and amazed at actually how many times a UFO has been uh, reported to have, have fallen from the sky. Do you have give me? Do you have a sense of the actual actual number of of credible UFO crash sightings? We have to separate. We have to separate the misidentifications, the mundane, the blatant hoaxes from the good information. If you do an internet search, you can find lists of UFO crashes, and some of them are close to three hundred. Well, that's absolutely preposterous. They'd be raining out of the sky, and we'd be having a whole different conversation. Looking at the list, we're able to pare it down, or I should say I'm able to pare it down, and this is my opinion based on my research, but I think at best we're looking at five or six that could be considered actual alien craft crashes. And you, you've mentioned Roswell, you've mentioned Kecksburg. Uh, earlier on you mentioned Las Vegas. Uh, Shag Harbor in Canada is very good. Uh, Don Ledger and Chris Stiles have done just an absolute great job of documenting that case and a lot of documents. And, and in that respect, it kind of moves ahead of Roswell because the number of documents that they found that related to this event in 1967 is, is, is very important. Now, would that so actually have, classify as a, uh, be considered a crash? I, 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 I've always, maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought that was more of a, what appeared to be a UFO, uh, perhaps... Uh, 
I don't know, landing in, in the ocean and perhaps uh, being submerged underwater? I don't know. Maybe, I guess that would be a crash, wouldn't it? And, and you have to look at you know, what happened. Is it, would an emergency landing be a crash? Well, yeah, sort of. It depends on if you roll it up into a little ball or not. But, but I think given, given the um, descriptions that we have, and, and I say we, I should say Don, Don Ledger and, and Chris Stiles have, have produced, suggest that it did crash. It may have been assisted by another craft um, after, after it entered, entered the water. But I think, I think we can count that as a crash, even though they apparently managed to get it repaired and, got, and, and took off. But but um, I've always thought of that as one of the UFO crashes, and it's been it, it wasn't a retrieval, however, by no. by your uh, the Canadian government or the American government. It was it's something that escaped, but but it fits into the category very well. Other than something that just landed and took off, and there's uh, um, four thousand forty five hundred what they what they call landing trace cases, where the objects have have just touched down. For moments or a peri- longer period of time, and then taken off. Those aren't crashes; those are landings. And um, some wonderful work has been done along those lines by Ted Phillips. All right, uh, Kevin, we'll pick this up on the other side. We'll we'll talk about uh, some of the latest information regarding the Roswell crash, 1947, near Corona, New Mexico. When we continue to discuss UFO crashes, retrievals. Debris, a crash near Aurora, Texas, back in 1897, and the pilot of that craft is said to have been buried in the local cemetery. We'll find out whether that's perhaps credible or just incredible. Back on the other side. Stay with us. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And occasionally UFOs do come down. And sometimes the wreckage is, uh, well, it falls often into the, uh, the hands of the military, never to be seen again. But um, perhaps in other instances, there are uh, credible uh, well, pieces of, uh, of wreckage that have fallen into the hands of uh, researchers. We'll find out. Kevin Randall is with us, the author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky. We just heard the, uh, the, uh, the news uh, cast there of the, uh, the capture of a UFO near Roswell. And y- you have, and report in this book, some uh, fairly late-breaking information. Now, I've, I've talked to uh, 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 Schmidt and um, 
Uh, hmm. Tom Carey. Yes, Tom Carey. A number of times on the show, uh, and uh, I, I just I find this case so intriguing. Here we are coming up on the 63rd anniversary, and the fact that there's still new information coming forth is is particularly uh, I- interesting. What, what do you? What new new information do we have on Roswell, Kevin? One of the controversies about the Roswell case has been the firefighters. Did the fire department go outside the city limits? And the skeptics will tell you, no, they didn't go outside the city limits. They didn't make runs outside the city limits. That point's really moot. I found in the fire department records actual listings of runs outside the city limits in 1947, so clearly they made the runs. But what we discovered is that um, Frankie Rowe was telling us that her father, who'd been a firefighter, a lieutenant in the fire department, had seen the craft and seen the bodies. We could find no record of an official run outside the city limits at this time. Well, Carl Flock, when he did his anti-Roswell book, said he'd talked to three firefighters at, at the Roswell Fire Department, and they said, no, we didn't go out there. It never happened. It, nothing happened. We interviewed one, re-interviewed one of these guys in the last year and a half, and he was telling me basically the same thing he told Carl Flock. No, we didn't go out there. I said, did you know Dan Dwyer? He said, well, yeah, he was a lieutenant here. He said, he went out, but the rest of us didn't go. And, I, and I'm thinking, what? What are you talking about? So the guy tells us that an officer, he says a colonel, and I don't know why it's always a colonel, couldn't be a major, couldn't be a captain, but he said a colonel, an officer from the uh, Roswell Army Airfield, had come to the fire department and says, you guys don't have to worry about it, we've got it handled, you don't need to go out there. Dwyer, in his personal car, drove on out to see what was going on, saw the bodies, saw the craft, and went home and told his family about it. So what we were able to do is, by re-interviewing this guy, that Carl Flock had quoted as saying, we didn't go out there. The guy's telling the truth. Carl got the information he wanted and ended the interview. He didn't ask that one additional question, which I always try to ask. And the one additional question in this case happened to be, did you know Dan Dwyer? And that brought us a whole new uh, uh, bunch of information, a whole new list of facts about what had happened in 1947. We've since learned that the firefighters who went out there were part of the base fire department. It was a new organization at Roswell in 1947, and so it's been a little bit difficult to trace some of that stuff down. Now, that information is just brand new, brand, brand new. It it didn't make it into the book. The important thing is we talked to the uh, firefighters, uh, or talked to this one firefighter, and we were able to take it beyond what uh, Carl Flock had said. The other thing that we found interesting, or that, that we discovered, is Lydia Schleppi, who had been the teletype operator at the radio station in Albuquerque, who was sending the message over the um, wire when, the, when it was interrupted uh, to tell her to cease transmission. The skeptics said, well, that's impossible. They couldn't interrupt the transmission, you see, because you'd have to flip a switch to get an incoming transmission. And if they'd gone back and read the affidavit that Lydia Schleppi had given us, she actually mentions that, there was, that, that if there was an incoming transmission, there was a bell that went off, and it told her to, to switch over to the, to the receive mode. So, we, so not only did we sort of debunk the debunkers, but we learned, we learned something about the Schleppi testimony. But a more important fact came out. There was a magazine called Saga, which was a men's magazine, not like Playhouse or Penthouse or, or Playboy, but dealt with um, government exposés and war stories and things like that. And they would 
carry a lot of UFO stuff. Well, back in 1976, before anybody was talking about Roswell, there's two paragraphs in one story about UFOs where Lydia Schleppi's talking about how she'd been, been transmitting this story of a flying saucer crash when the transmission was interrupted. So her testimony can be documented that predates the publication of the first book on Roswell, predates Len Stringfield's um, a call for us to take another look at the crash retrievals in 1978, predates all of that stuff. It's documented right there. Lydia Schleppi's talking about how she had been transmitting the story of a UFO crash and it had been interrupted uh, to tell her to cease the transmission. So those are two of the things that, that, that come out in the Roswell case that really hadn't been discussed before and add credibility to the story. The, okay, so this, this reporter that was uh, reporting from Albuquerque, when it was interrupted, is that to suggest then that uh, she, was, she was getting new information perhaps from Colonel Blanchard to start reporting on the weather balloon? Is that no, what happened? What she, what, she, what she said originally is that they got, a trans, they got, a, they got interrupted and said cease transmission immediately and didn't, didn't provide additional facts or diff, diff, additional information, wanted the transmission to cease. Didn't come from Colonel Blanchard. He wouldn't have, been, he wouldn't have had the authority to do that. He couldn't have done that. It came, it came from someone else. Now, later on, as we talked uh, about this and interviewed Sleppy, she got the idea that it was the FBI that had done that. There's no evidence that the FBI broke in on the transmission and said, you know, this is the FBI cease transmission. It's just the best story is it was uh, her transmission was broken into and she was told to cease. So we've been able to document her telling the story before 1978, and um, I, I think that that's an important point. The firefighter you mentioned was it Dan Dwyer? Dan Dwyer was Frankie Rowe's father. He's a he was a lieutenant in the fire department. Told the family the story, and and I was able to interview Frankie Rowe gave us the most information. I was able to interview her sister, uh, Helen Cahill, who corroborated what Frankie was telling us. And then we found another firefighter in Roswell who, uh, corro- who gave independent corroboration of this. He didn't go out there, but he knew Dan Dwyer, and said Dwyer went out there, and Dwyer saw the craft and bodies and told him a little bit about it. Did He, he saw the craft and the bodies at the Air Force Base or on Bra- no, Brazos out on, Ranch? Out in, out in the field, out in the field. Now that would have been was that Brazel's Ranch or was that out on the San Augustine Plains or no? It wasn't on the San Augustine Plains. It was back. It was back toward uh, Roswell, and the, the information that we have suggests the thing broke up, and part of it fell on the Brazel Ranch. But that seemed to be mostly metallic debris, and you don't get from the descriptions I had. You didn't get the the idea that that there was the uh, um, variety of debris you'd expect if the thing had just shattered over there. So that the, you've got a little bit of debris there, or well, you've got a lot of debris there, but very few items in the debris, and that the actual craft itself came down closer to Roswell. And that was, that was found a, a couple of days after Brazel had come into Roswell to talk about what he had found uh, on the ranch. The, uh, the subsequent crashes... When researching them, do you find a different approach uh, in terms of, uh, I don't know, the mode of the cover-up? In other words, 
I'm guessing that after 47, you know, and the, the first, of course, uh, news report went out that it was a UFO, and then, and then Blanchard uh, uh, told Hout, you know, uh, rewrite that press release. It was a weather balloon. Uh, did, do you find that the, I don't know, the military, the government, had it a little more together in terms of controlling the, the flow of information coming out of the, uh, the crash reports? Absolutely. The best example of that is the Las Vegas crash, which uh, there was a great number of events in Utah around the Nephi, Eureka, Utah area. The craft was seen to land momentarily. It flew over a town and knocked out all the lights. The Air Force said, well, it, it was so bright it, it, it caused the photoelectric cells on the street lights to trip and, and turn them off. But in fact, it turned off a lot of lights, and this is a well-known electromagnetic effect related to UFOs. A fellow there told me it came across his car, the engine sputtered and died, the lights went out, and when the UFO moved off, then, then the engine sprung back to life and the lights came back on. Object was seen to move out toward Reno. Uh, Air Force pilot in a transport plane saw the object below him. A, a crew of an airliner out of Reno saw the object below them. It made a looping turn over Reno, Nevada, came back toward Las Vegas and the, and the east and was seen to explode in the sky near Mesquite, Nevada, which is right on the border with Utah and Nevada. And what's interesting about this, the Air Force put part of the case in local time, part of the case in Greenwich Mean Time, and by doing that it looked like you had two separate events on two separate days. But when you correct the Greenwich Mean Time for local time, you find out the event took place over 16 minutes. So what they were able to do, and what they did in, in this case, was split it by doing that into two different seemingly days, and they could explain each one independently. But when you put them together, there's no explanation that covers all the facts, because you're not going to have a meteor flying around making great looping turns and being seen for 16 minutes. Have you been able to... Let, let, me, let me take a time out. We'll come back and I'll ask you uh, about... Uh, whether you were able to obtain any new documentation on this uh, through FOIA uh, or what new information at this late stage in the game can be uh, gleaned from this incident going back to 1962. This is an object that was actually first seen in western New York, Oneida, New York, and pretty well tracked across the country. I think it was seen in Kansas and Colorado and uh, uh, Eureka, Utah, before finally crashing near uh, Vegas. In any event, we'll look into that and many other UFO crashes with Kevin Randall. Crash when UFOs fall from the sky. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The crash near Roswell was a weather balloon And according to the military, or the Air Defense Command, the uh, crash in uh, 62, April 18th of 62, uh, near Las Vegas, was a meteorite. However, uh, in the uh, history of the world, I don't know if uh, it's ever been documented for a meteorite to crash and then to take off again, but uh, that's apparently what this meteorite did in Las Vegas. Uh, Kevin uh, Randall is with us, and uh, one of the world's top UFO researchers, the book is Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky. Did anyone get close uh, to the, uh, the the 62 crash in Las Vegas, uh, other than the military? Did anyone get close? 
in in the in the uh, Utah end of it, we've got some people that got got fairly close to it or saw it very close to them in the, in the sky. Uh, what is also interesting about that is when the thing was seen to to detonate, the Clark County Sheriff's Office, Las Vegas being in Clark County, sent their uh, rescue team out to see if they could help, uh, commanded by Lieutenant Butts, and I talked to him a couple of times about what he had seen and what what went on out there. And he said when he got out close to the fences that marked the ranges of Nellis Air Force Base, Nellis has huge gunnery races, ranges in all throughout southern Nevada. I think like 80% of the state is owned by the federal government, so there's very little um, private property in, in Las Vegas. But the, uh, uh, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, get any further, so he turned back. We know that the object was tracked on radar because they, they mentioned that in the Project Blue Book files, and they're discussing whether or not it's possible to track a meteor on radar. What I understand is you can't track the meteor itself. What you actually end up tracking is the ionization trails left behind it. We also know that in the um, uh, part of the story was that uh, civilian had written into Project Blue Book and asked if they had scrambled fighters to intercept this object. And the fellow who wrote back to him, Major Hart, said, no, no fighters were, were scrambled. But in the Project Blue Book files, you find actual... Uh, government documents that say that fighters were scrambled off uh, uh, Luke Air Force Base in, uh, in the Phoenix area. So you've got fighters being scrambled. What's new in this book is I found some testimony from a general who had taken off from Peterson Field, which is in Colorado Springs, and he called the command post to talk about the objects he'd seen. So we've got a number of pilots in the air that night who talk about seeing the object. And we can, as, as, as I mentioned, we can track the time so we realize that this is much a much longer flight than you get for a, um, uh, a meteor. In the aftermath of Roswell, we had, um, uh, my understanding is, so you can um, disabuse me of this perhaps, but we had Secret Service uh, agents on the ground going around knocking on doors. The sheriff, uh, Wilcox, uh, telling people uh, to say nothing and... Uh, uh, people were actually threatened uh, that if they uh, they did speak to anyone about this, they would be planted in the desert someplace. Do you have any of that sort of behavior uh, going on surrounding the 62 crash uh, on the part of the military or uh, uh, other government uh, agents? Nothing nothing like that. I, there were a couple of investigative teams, Hynek and a Colonel Friend, who at the time in charge of uh, Project Blue Book, did go into Nevada and they questioned people and they, they mentioned they were out going to go out and look for the meteor when it fell because they thought they had enough information to, to find it that way. Of course, they never never did. There was also apparently a team that came from Dugway Proving Ground and Dugway, if I remember correctly, is a proving ground that released uh, a gas into the atmosphere in the early 1960s and it resulted in a, a, a number of of animal deaths and even a couple of human deaths. So Dugway is a, a very secret testing facility for the U.S. Army. So they sent a team in to investigate. But there, there weren't the people in, in, in um, Utah or Nevada who'd actually seen the craft on the ground, who'd actually seen the bodies from it. We've just got the object in the sky, and we've got the object seen to explode them and apparently coming down on the Nellis Ranges. So you don't have the people seeing the things they saw in Roswell. So it wasn't necessary to 
um, threaten him in that fashion. All, all it was necessary to do was talk to him and say, well, I was just a meteor, forget about it. And, of course, they didn't. They were, they were confused by the things they had seen, and they, they knew it wasn't a meteorite. People, uh, skeptics, often uh, talk about, you know, where is the tangible evidence? And, um, uh, I mean, we have uh, firsthand uh, eyewitness testimony from people like Jesse Marcel Jr., who, uh, you know, was, uh, his dad came home with uh, some pieces of the craft in the, in the back of his truck, I guess, and wanted to wake up his son to witness this historic event. And he, you know, they laid it out all on the kitchen table and so forth. Uh, but are there other researchers? Has, has crash debris even small pieces, ever f- found its way into researchers' hands and then remained there without having been seconded by the U.S. military? Absolutely. Unfortunately, uh, there's always an unfortunately when we talk about these things. There was an object seen to explode in the sky near Ubatuba, Brazil in 1957, and bits of the debris rained down into the ocean and onto a beach. Uh, a person on the beach picked up a number of the fragments and mailed them to a correspondent for a newspaper in um, in Sao Paulo, I believe he was. Uh, but it was the, the the crash was in Ubatuba. He gave that or contacted Alevio Fontes, who was the APRO representative in Brazil, uh, uh, and APRO being the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization started by the Lorenzans in 1952. He gathered up some of the material. He had it tested in Brazil, and they said that they found no evidence of contaminants in this metal. It was very pure magnesium. Fontes made a, made a leap of logic there that he shouldn't have done. He, he assumed that meant it was 100% cure. What they said was they found no evidence of contaminants, which meant there could have been contaminants there, but their instrumentation wasn't of sufficient sensitivity to discover anything like that. In 1957, no one really had any uh, instrumentation to do that. Pieces of that material did get to APRO headquarters. They gave a small piece to the Air Force for testing, and the Air Force then called back and said, you know, we accidentally destroyed that without getting a good spectroscopic reading. Could you send us another piece? And I always thought that was pretty funny. I mean, bits and pieces of an alien spacecraft are pretty hard to come by. You clowns burned it up without getting any kind of um, spectroscopic analysis. Now you want some more. I'm thinking, no, you can... I will pass on sending you more. It has been tested since that time. It turns out that Dow Chemical was doing stuff with magnesium, and they had some extremely pure magnesium. It's never explained how these guys in Brazil got their hands on this this uh, this magnesium that would have been of of such purity that it would fool the instrumentation but it was but it was created in such small amounts that, that there wouldn't be a lot of it around and there's no evidence that the Dow metal conforms precisely to the material that was found Peter Sturrock Dr. Peter Sturrock has done some additional work on that and in the book there's the, the all if you're interested in the very technical aspects of the testing well that information is in in there from Dr. Sturrock's report he allowed me to copy from that, a report from from what he had said. So what we're what we're stuck with is some magnesium that is extremely pure. It doesn't look as if it could have been created on Earth in 1957, but there's a, there's a small possibility it was. So this, to me, is the the definition of an unidentified. We just don't know on this one. We've got the pieces. It's in the hands of of uh, private researchers. Yes, the chain of custody is broken. 
but that can't be helped. But the testing on it has has continued as we uh, increase our sensitivity and our ability to test these things. And Sturrock and the others said, well, it could be of extraterrestrial manufacture. Didn't prove that it was. So like I said, this is the, the absolute definition of an unidentified. Are there, in your estimation, any credible photographs of alleged alien bodies? No. We have been teased with those. In fact, we were told that a fellow um, had stumbled on this in 1947 in Roswell with his camera and had taken several photographs, and we were told what his first name was. He had a very, very strange first name. So we went to the county courthouse in Roswell in Chavez County and says, can you sort the records by first names? And they said, well, yeah, we can do that. So we got a list of the people with this, this strange name. It wasn't like it was Tom or John or something. And we talked to, there, there, there were like four of them. And I think we found the guy, but we couldn't get to the pictures. So we haven't seen, seen them and seen if they were any good, but we did, we did get to the guy. Uh, but I have seen no photographs that are not traceable to some kind of a hoax or even movie footage. I know that, that the, um, some of the pictures that have been circulated on the Internet of the Roswell aliens are actually from the movie Roswell that was done in 1994. All right, let's uh, go to the phones. Uh, Dave is in Niagara. Dave, you're on the the, uh, the line with Kevin Randall, author of Crash. Good evening, Richard. Uh, good show. I have a question. I believe space programs, um, and there's you know places like Area 51, things like that. I want I'd like to ask your guest why he believes that UFOs are extraterrestrial and not terrestrial. Good question, Dave uh, or Kevin. That's one obviously that uh, is is uh, crucial to the. Uh, the whole debate, but uh, ETs extraterrestrial or in fact terrestrial? I, be- I believe they're extraterrestrial. I will I will say this about Area 51. I believe what's being tested there is the next generation of military aircraft, and that the development of these aircraft. I mean, we take it take take the example of the SR-71. Here's basically 1950s technology because that's when they started developing the thing, and and it's we still don't know how fast it goes. The only thing I know for certain was uh, one of the pilots had told me that if Soviet missiles were fired at it from a Soviet fighter in a tail chase position, the SR-71 was fast enough to outrun the missiles. So, I mean, incredible technology from the 1950s. So I think what's, what's being tested in Area 51 is the next generation of military aircraft. The reason I say it's extraterrestrial is the reported performance of the craft based on the eyewitness testimony, based on what military pilots have told us. But also, every member of Colonel Blanchard's staff, Blanchard being the commander in Roswell in 1947, every member of his staff that we were able to interview told us it was extraterrestrial, with one exception. He said there's nothing to it. So that, that's one of the reasons we believe it. Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal in Roswell in 1947, I asked him one day, I said, are we following the right path? He says, what do you mean? I said, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way, it's not the wrong path. So I, I think based on that, based on the descriptions of the bodies that, that we have uh, been able to get from credible witnesses, 
based on the descriptions of the craft, based on the, the capabilities of the craft as they've been observed in our atmosphere, including um, radar trackings and that sort of thing, all suggest a technology that is superior to what we have here, and that would be extraterrestrial. David Niagara, thank you for the call. We'll get to Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, 1965, and the UFO crash there, witnessed by at least a 1,000 people. Kevin Randall, my guest. The book is Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. December 9th, 65, hundreds of witnesses in Michigan... Ohio, Pennsylvania, observed a UFO crash. At first, it appeared to be nothing more than a spectacular meteorite, but 30, well, almost uh, 45 years uh, now, and it's still a source of uh, much controversy among UFO researchers. How does Kevin Randall feel about the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania crash? When you, when you started the question, I thought you were going to say we had a phone call from Kecksburg. I was going to say, hi, Stan. You're going to have Stan Gordon calling in or something. Uh, there, are some, there are some problems with, with the story, and, and some of the witnesses aren't as credible as you would like them to be, and that would be the ones that are right down there in the woods. But I, I looked into the possibility of it being a meteor, because that's the skeptical answer for it. Something clearly fell in the woods near Kecksburg. If there was a meteor fall associated with this, it apparently came down in Canada, from what I can determine from the available records. So I'm not sure that this is related. At one point, the skeptic idea was that it was part of the Cosmos 96 uh, rocket from the Soviet Union. It was supposed to be a space probe to Venus that didn't make orbit and fell, fell to Earth, but it fell to Earth some 13 hours before the Kecksburg object was seen. We know, based on the testimony, and, and you can eliminate, you could eliminate the, the civilian witnesses if you, if you wish to do so, uh, and, and just concentrate on what the state police said. So there, there were state police involved in this thing. There were military people involved. Some of the witnesses talked about the Army being there. I suspect it was the Air Force instead. I don't think there, there was an Army present there, and I say this because back in those 1965, the... Air Force fatigue uniform looked an awful lot like the Army fatigue uniform, and the only difference would be it said U.S. Air Force instead of U.S. Army, and, I, and I'm not sure that people would, would be looking that closely. So they, they see a guy in a green uniform uh, carrying a weapon, they just assume it's an Army guy. So I, I'm not sure that's a major, major problem. We know that something was trucked out of the area um, early, early on. We know that the local fire department was taken over by the military as a command post for a short period of time. One of the things we also know is by 4 o'clock in the morning, it was all over, because I talked to uh, an anthropologist, an archaeologist, and he and a number of his students heard the reports on the radio. They're living in Ohio, 
and they drove over to Kecksburg to see what they could find, and they got there about 4 o'clock in the, mo- uh, in the morning, and everything was dark and everything was deserted. So the operation, whatever it was, had been completed very, very early, and uh, the operation suspended and moved, moved out of the town. So we got some very good information that way. There was a radio program that was done within a week of it with a number of people who had originally agreed to go on the show and then just before airtime called the reporter and said, no, we just, we just don't want to do that. We don't want our names associated with it. So we had to recut the program. Uh, Stan Gordon has a copy of that program, and he, he was kind enough to send me one a number of years ago, so I've got a copy of it as well. So we can listen, we can listen to that. But we've got all of that information, some very good information going on. Something very unusual happened there in, in 1947, or 1947, 1965. Well, this object that was loaded onto a truck, and some reports say it was covered over with sheets, uh, was reported to resemble a large acorn, and in some reports there was a, a suggestion that there were strange hieroglyphics on the craft surface. Can you, what can you tell us about that? that? In the mock-up, in the, they now have a mock-up, on a pole, and there's actually a picture of it in the book. Uh, Stan Gordon sent me a picture to, to use in the book. So, so you can see the acorn shape of the object with the, with the hieroglyphic-like writing around, around the rim. And yes, there was, a flatbed truck was brought in and something was hauled away on that flatbed truck. I'm more interested in the state police statements because I think those would be very credible. I'm interested in that sort of thing. Stan has done a, a Herculean job of of putting all this together since it happened in 1965. I was going to say that Leslie Keene, uh, working with Stan Gordon, had filed suit against NASA to get a hold of their records, and they lost records, and they couldn't find records, and that sort of thing. And all that's detailed in the book about what they what they learned and what NASA did to um, find records and, and, and to give us an idea of what may have happened. So NASA, NASA let everybody down by losing these records, uh, if we can believe that they lost them. But it ended up, the lawsuit just ended up uh, uh, a year and a half or two years ago, so the information that, that Leslie Keene was provided for me uh, is fairly new, and, and I don't think a lot of people have it. What about the, um, the witness, supposedly, who claimed to be part of uh, the military team that was sent to retrieve the object, and he said that uh, he have he was given orders to shoot anyone who got too close. I find that difficult to believe. My job, just before I retired from the National Guard, I was the deputy provost marshal for the state of Iowa. I know the laws in effect when military go into places like that. There's a there's a law called posse comitatus. Yes, which says basically federal troops cannot be used in law enforcement, period, end of discussion. There are two exceptions, drug enforcement and presidential directive. No evidence of a presidential directive here. When we as National Guardsmen, depending on the status we're called up on, if we're under federal orders, then posse commentatus applies. If we're not, posse comments does not apply. If it's state active duty, then we can engage in law enforcement. What we always try to do is pair our soldiers with law enforcement and let them make the law law enforcement decisions. It's very, very, it's a very, very shaky situation. You have to be very, very careful when you do something like that. Somebody may have said that, 
at the time, or somebody might have said something that sounds similar to that, and a and a civilian misunderstood it. I'm not denying that 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 something like that didn't take place. I'm saying legally it wouldn't have happened, which is not the same thing as saying it didn't happen. Legally, it wouldn't have happened. Well, the whole question of legalities. I mean, you have all of these supposedly these special access uh, programs uh, that are flying under the radar of congressional oversight. There is a lot of illegal activity around this whole issue. So I'm, I just wondered whether something, uh, you know, whether they would allow, you know, uh, something like that posse comitatus to to actually uh, interfere with with keeping the lid on this, but there's also the report of when when, oh. when I when I talk about the posse comitata, who was talking about the regular military forces going in there, not any special units or special right. trained units or civilian units. It's specifically military forces, and there was a story of a documented story. We know this: uh, a, a team came from Pittsburgh, an Air Force team came from Pittsburgh. They were on active duty. Posse comitata applied to them. Okay. Now, there's also a story of a worker at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base who claims that uh, a strange object was shipped in uh, there on the 16th of December of the same year, just days after the events at Kecksburg, and he described the object almost identically as the other witnesses had described. And while he was observing the object, a, a guard escorted him out of the hangar and told him, you've just seen an object that will be common knowledge in 20 years' time. Did you ever uh, sort of look into that thread? Well, it's not much of a threat. It's just a not a. Th- I'm sorry, not a threat, but the thread, sort of the thread of that. That there have been a number of those predictions down the road. Uh, that that in in a certain amount of time, this information will be available, and none of them have come true. Clearly, we're twenty years would have been 1985. We're now more than 20 years beyond that, and this is not common knowledge now. So the prediction obviously didn't take place. We talked to, and I say we, I, I, I'll include uh, uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey in that, uh, because we work together at some time, sometimes we haven't worked together at other times, but we've all talked to people who are at Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, who talked about the stuff coming in, and seeing it at various times. Now, some of the one of the women, women that we talked to, had, and, and she had the documentation to prove that she was there and prove that she worked in the area she did and that she had the clearance, talked about a sergeant coming in and telling them that something had come in and what a, given descriptions of it, and then a colonel came in and said, no, uh, there was nothing to that story, it's just a, a rumor, forget it, but if you ever mention it, you'll be arrested and go to jail for 20 years. So clearly something happened. But... The timing of it suggests it's not Roswell, simply because she was not there at the right time in 1947. It suggests it was something later, something in the 1950s, and we're not sure exactly what event that might have been. So, so we, we've talked to people like that. I talked to a woman named Elaine Vay who told me that her uncle, Darrell Rasmussen, had been at Roswell in 1947 and told her and a couple of family members at a reunion about what had happened at Roswell before everybody got real interested in this thing. And we go to the yearbook that Walter Hott produced. I'm looking up Darrell Rasmussen. He's not in the yearbook. So he's saying, well, okay. Uh, Walter had told me that 10 to 20% of the people assigned to the base in 1947 were not in the yearbook. I have a copy of the phone book for the base. So I looked him up in that. Sure enough, Captain Darrell Rasmussen signed to the base 
had his base phone number. If <laughs> it was like three digits, so you couldn't possibly call it now. But uh, so he was there, and he talked about the craft and the bodies um, being being shipped out. I mean, Pappy Henderson talked about craft and bodies. So we, we've talked to some very credible people about these sorts of things and about stuff getting to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Wright Field. So that the, that somebody might have stumbled into the wrong area as the stuff was being unloaded or or transferred makes perfect sense to me because even though you want the security to be perfect, it's not always that way. Uh, we had in uh, in Iraq we had what they we called a self briefing talk, which means when the senior officers came in, we didn't have to stop what we were doing to tell them what was going on. They could walk around the room and they could see, based on the various uh, dry erase boards and everything, what was happening. And our guard at the at the door one day allowed two Iraqis to walk in. Well, they weren't cleared to see the stuff, so we're scrambling to cover all the boards and everything. So stuff happens. Uh, I don't think anything was compromised at this event, and, and they were... Uh, friendly to to the United States, but my point simply is, stuff happens. So you have somebody who sees something being transferred or just that walks into the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, certainly possible. What about from the private sector? Uh, I teach a a course, uh, a talk radio course on Thursday nights, and one of one of my students told me that his grandfather used to work at Phillips, and. Um, Electronics, obviously. Uh, they uh, and he he told his grandson, my student, that he was shown some debris from a crash site and was was told, you know, as part of a team to try and figure out what it was and perhaps how it worked. Do you hear from uh, people who worked at uh, you know the the R and R departments at Sony or Philips or or? other large uh, corporations that might, in fact, be in possession of some of this uh, uh, crash debris? A fellow named Tony um, Braglia has been chasing the Battelle Institute, who may, have, who may have done some of that. And some of the early research that would seem to fit in to trying to reverse engineer um, the, uh, the object at Roswell... Some of the reports about that have, have disappeared, uh, which, which makes some people very, very suspicious. If you're dealing with something like this, the ideal situation is to break it up into small pieces, meaning you don't give uh, the ship to one group and say, figure it out. You do the job of dismantling and give a small part of it to one group and another small part to another group and let them figure, figure out what's going on to see if you can rebuild the thing, reverse engineer it, if you will. So bringing in civilian agencies to do some of the reverse engineering sounds plausible to me. I'm wondering if that might be a, one of the, the issues uh, that's preventing the president, for example, uh, of disclosing uh, this. It's, it's, it's gone beyond a national security issue, and at some point, maybe as far back as Truman, uh, it was decided that once the military seizes this uh, stuff, they're to, uh, to send it. In, in, in a sense, it's gone into the private sector, uh, and it's become so compartmentalized and outside of the government sphere uh, that 
the president really doesn't know anything anymore. It's gone private. Is that I would I would suggest now that the, the, the governmental agencies that are responsible for the um, reverse engineering would keep control of it. But I will. But I'll, I'll agree with you to this this point that that this project can be done outside the sphere of the president. He doesn't need to know what's going on. And given the world events today, I think President Obama has to deal with the oil spill in the Gulf, which is getting ridiculous. He's got to deal with the economy. He's got to deal with two wars, one in Iran, one in Afghanistan. He's got priorities that, that require his attention. UFOs, even if they're flying through the atmosphere 24 hours a day and are somewhat of a menace to the aerial navigation, are not as important to what he needs to do as all these other things right now. So he doesn't have to deal with it. The uh, agencies responsible can deal with it and make the decisions. The important decisions were made in 1947 and 1948. People doing it now just carry on those decisions. If they can, um, they apply new, the new technologies to it to understand what's going on. But there's no need for them to report to the president or to um, uh, let him know what's going on unless some kind of an astounding breakthrough is made, in which case then the president would be alerted. We can point to American history. There was an, something called Operation Solo. The FBI had a guy in the Pentagon, or not the Pentagon, but in the Kremlin, and the Russians were say, uh, saying everything to him. I mean, they trusted him implicitly. They, they didn't know he could speak Russian, so they would have some Russian conversations uh, around him, and he could understand what they were saying. They didn't know that. But they, they gave him hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to do the communist thing in the United States, and the guy would uh, tell the FBI what was happening and what the feeling was in the Soviet Union. The president didn't know about it. The guys in the New York office that were not involved in the operation didn't know about it. The presidents were kept out of the loop with the exception of Gerald Ford, and it was right after he took over for Richard Nixon, and he was going to meet with the Soviets, and he was very worried about this. And so they sat him down, told him about Operation Solo, and said, here's what we know is going to happen, and here's what you need to do. When, when Kennedy stared down the Soviets during, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Operation Solo gave the intelligence to the Americans that said that Soviets will back down because they do not have the missile capability and they realize it's going to be extremely destructive to them if they try to, try to push it and the Soviets will back down. All of this going on, with most presidents not knowing about it, with most the FBI not going about it, finally when um, a guy named was Morris Childs, when he retired... He was given the highest medal that the CIA hands out uh, for his service to the, the government, and his story was not told until he passed away in the 1990s in a book called Operation Solo. So if you want to see how these things work, this is the perfect example. All right, Kevin, we're going to break away. We'll, um, we'll check back with you in, in a few moments. I'm, uh, I'm going to do a, a quick uh, interview with a... Uh, gentleman who is about to, to embark on a, a bike ride across Western Canada in support of uh, mental health awareness. That'll be about five minutes, and then we'll get right back to our discussion on a history of UFO crashes and retrievals with Kevin Randall. The Conspiracy Show continues. I'm Richard Serrett.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We'll get back to our discussion on uh, UFO crashes and retrievals with Kevin Randall in just a moment. But I wanted to take a few minutes to discuss something uh, very important. On a Canada Day, fast approaching, a Brantford man, Brantford, Ontario, my hometown, will be fulfilling a promise he made to his terminally ill wife by riding his bike across Western Canada in support of those suffering from mental illness. As I say, his journey begins July 1st, when he'll depart from Victoria, B.C., en route to Thunder Bay with stops in Calgary, Regina, Winnipeg. This is a 3,130-kilometer journey, and it's expected to take approximately 40 days. And to tell us more about this ride for mental health is uh, the aforementioned and my cousin, Wayne McGinnis. Hello, Wayne. How are you? Hello. Hello there. Good to have you here. Now, you're, uh, you're leaving uh, uh, Thursday. Thursday, uh, June 24th. So you're going to drive out to Victoria. Drive out to Victoria. And uh, what, uh, let, let our listeners know what inspired you to, to, to make this ride for mental health. What is your motivation here? Well, my motivation is I uh, did Ontario in 206 in memory of my wife that died of ovarian cancer, and I did the whole province of Ontario. So when I rode Ontario, of course, you want it gets in your blood, and you want to start to finish all of Canada. So I, when my wife was um, in the process of the cancer treatments and all that, we adopted a, a son, uh, Sean McGinnis, and he had a lot of mental health issues uh, through his childhood. And when we tried to bring him up and adopt him at two and a half, and um, he was uh, he was up at CPRI up in London uh, Rehabilitation Center for ten months, and then he couldn't make it home. He had to go to group homes, and. Unfortunately, he had a lot of mental health issues, and I guess I've gone through a lot of mental health issues trying to raise him and bring him up. So uh, that's, I gave it a thought, well, to try to complete Canada, let's uh, do uh, fundraising. The second part of Canada is from Victoria to Thunder Bay, because the last time, I went from the Juravinsky Cancer Center all the way up to Thunder Bay, across to Ottawa, down to Kingston, and home. So I thought, let's do the western part for mental health. Wayne McGinnis on the line from Brantford. He's uh, departing from Victoria on July 1st and uh, riding, doing the western wing of his bike ride, this time in support of uh, mental mental illness, trying to draw uh, awareness to this... uh, um, much uh, well it's something that definitely needs attention it is unfortunately not getting the kind of attention that uh, it desperately needs and uh, Wayne as you say your uh, adopted son Sean um, suffers from uh, bipolar disorder and uh, which I understand is a biochemical condition and it can result in in severe mood swings and it not only affects obviously the individual but if you you, uh, as you have said the entire family 
um, suffers along um, with this. So uh, I mentioned earlier, you and I are cousins, and uh, I happen to know that you're, uh, you're 50-something. Uh, so, you know, you're not, let's face it, you're, you're, you're not a, a, a young man, uh, but, um, I mean, how, how do you train for something like this? Uh, that, that, well, this is quite a ride. It takes a lot of training, spin classes. I'm just about a block and a half from the Gretzky Center. Swimming, try to get every day in you can, like ride your bike to work. And some days you just can't ride, but you do whatever you can do. And you do um, any long-distance ride you can when you can. Now, if people are, uh, obviously this is to raise uh, donations in, su- in support of uh, mental health awareness, so how do people uh, get on board and, and, uh, and donate? Okay, the uh, TD Canada Trust bank account, 6321-721, and the branch transit is 0224. Now, if you want to get uh, uh, a donation, you can contact... Um, uh, Branford um, uh, Mental Health uh, CMHA, or um, I have a uh, uh, website, um, uh, or email. Somehow we'll get the donation to you. My email is wackywayne50hotmail.com. Wackywayne50 at hotmail.com. But if they go into any TD Canada Trust branch across the country, uh, they could make a check payable to... Now, is it Wayne McGinnis Ride for Mental Health Awareness? Yeah, it's got to be... My name's got to be on the check, then Ride for Mental Health Awareness. Okay, Wayne McGinnis Ride for Mental Health Awareness. You can take that into, into any TD Canada Trust branch across the country. And the account number, again, is 632... 1721. The branch transit is 0224. And uh, they will receive a, um, they can receive a, uh, a tax receipt. The best thing to do is just to get a hold of you at your, through your email at wackywayne50 at hotmail.com. And let me give out the website as well. It's uh, rideforcancer.yola site. That's Y O L A. S-I-T-E, rideforcancer.yolasite.com. You don't need the triple W in, in, in front of it. Rideforcancer.yolasite.com. I'll also put a link up on my website here at richardserrett.com. Uh, Wayne, we'll check in from with you from uh, time to time while you're on the road here on The, uh, the Conspiracy Show. Uh, but um, uh, safe trip out west and uh, give my best to Shirley and all, uh, all the good luck in the world to you, Wayne. Right. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, buddy. I appreciate everything anybody does. All right, Wayne. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, and uh, let's resume our conversation on UFO crashes and retrievals. Kevin Randall is with us, and uh, certainly one of the top or most foremost uh, UFO researchers in the field. Uh, The uh, the uh, uh, 1950 crash in Del Rio, Texas... Uh, what can you, this is a one that uh, many people may not be uh, familiar with. Can you tell us a little bit about that crash and uh, and w- w- what you've learned? This was one that came to the forefront in the mid 1970s. 
fellow named Robert Willingham said that he was a colonel, retired colonel from the military, and that while he was flying chase with a B-47 bomber, I believe, something streaked across the sky. It was seen on radar. It uh, streaked across the sky in front of him and, and fell to the ground, crashed, near Del Rio, Texas, on the Mexican side of the border. He landed the jet fighter he was in, got into a single-engine propeller-driven private plane, flew down there, landed, got close enough to see the craft, saw some of the stuff going on, stole a piece of debris uh, before the Mexican authorities made him leave. He took the debris to Hagerstown, to a marine laboratory, and uh, gave it to them for analysis. And when he called back, the, the, the person that he had talked to, they said he, that person didn't work there, and they didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, because it was from a high-ranking military officer, what we what we now in the military call an 06, meaning a full colonel, uh, I assigned a great deal of credibility to it. So as I'm putting the book together, I'm thinking, well, maybe I ought to check up on this story and see what's new about it. And using the Internet, that wonderful research tool, typed Robert Willingham into the search engine and discovered that another, a book had been written about this case by, by Noah Torres and uh, Ruben Uarte, two, two researchers who have been around forever and a week. And they had, they had interviewed Willingham, but the problem is Willingham changed the story. It now no longer was Del Rio in 1950. It was somewhere slightly north of Del Rio, and it was in 1955. And the plane he was flying had changed. The airbase he was flying out of changed. An awful lot of information changed, and this made me very suspicious. I talked to Noah Torrey, and I shouldn't say I talked to him. I emailed him, and he emailed me back, and we had quite a correspondence uh, talking about this as I tried to gather more information, and he provided me everything that I asked for. I said, well, do you have a picture of the guy in uniform? And he said, yeah. And he sent me a picture. And I'm looking at the picture, and it's an Air Force uniform. And I stare at it a little bit more, and I say, you know, this is, an, this is a Civil Air Patrol uniform, not an Air Force uniform. Civil Air Patrol is the um, official auxiliary of the Air Force. It's a civilian volunteer organization that does a lot of search and rescue for the Air Force, which saves a lot of tax money when they do that. But it's not the same as being in the Air Force. And I said, and I said, do you have any other pictures of him? Because that's a Civil Air Patrol. And they said, well, yeah, he said he was in the Civil Air Patrol. So they sent me two other pictures, both of them in Civil Air Patrol uniforms, neither one Air Force uniforms. I wrote to St. Louis to get his military record. Um, I found that Robert Willingham had been a low-ranking enlisted man, joined the Army in December of 1945, and was discharged in January of 1947. Because the war ended officially, in the United States at least, in 1946, Willingham was technically a veteran of World War II, even though he, the war was over before he got into the military. And he, he, he said that, that, that information is correct. So I'm becoming very suspicious of this story now because things keep changing. And Len Stringfield, in his 1978 paper, the first abstract that he discussed was this Del Rio crash, but the date is 1948, not 1950, or, or not what the new date happens to be. So I, uh, got, I, I found out, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where the information came from, 
but the the article there had been an article in a shopper like newspaper up in 1968 i spent a year trying to find that i finally found a reference from 1968 to this story it was in skylook which is the precursor of the mufon journal it's the march 1968 issue, and I can't remember whether it's February, March, or March, April, but it's March of 1968. And on page three, there's a paragraph about Colonel Robert Willingham of the Civil Air Patrol seeing three objects while he's flying F-94s in 1948. Well, the F-94 didn't exist in 1948. So it, it, it really suggests that the Del Rio crash didn't take place. And what makes this such... Powerful information is if you believe in the MJ-12 paper, the document, the Eisenhower briefing document, Del Rio is mentioned in there with the information from 1950. And we can connect Robert Todd, who interviewed Robert Willingham, was attempting to convince Bill Moore to help him get a book written on the Del Rio crash, while Moore and Chandra have received the MJ-12 paper. So there's an interesting connection there that may lead to some trouble with MJ-12. And, and that's why that case has become important. But I have not found a single other witness to the Del Rio crash. The names that Willingham eventually provided are people who are dead, so they cannot be used to corroborate it. The information he gave us, one of the things he said, for example, is he'd been on active duty in the Air Force as a fighter pilot, but he was badly injured, and they wouldn't let him fly uh, fly in the air, on the active duty anymore, so he joined the Air Force Reserve. Well, I, I talked to some of my Air Force buddies, and they said, now the problem is if you're injured, if you're injured badly enough that you cannot fly fighters, that means you, the, the rigors of ejection will re-injure you in some fashion. You're often transferred into uh, transports or bombers that don't require ejection. So you can stay on active duty as a pilot, you just can't do it as a fighter pilot. And Willingham is saying that he was he couldn't fly fighters on active duty, so he flew fighters in the Air Force Reserve. Well, the same regulations apply to the Reserve. So there's a problem with his story there too. No documentation. He said he retired in he said he retired in 1973. And when you go to get his records, he says, well, they burned up in the Great St. Louis Fire. But there are other sources of records, especially for Air, Pe Air Force people. There's the, uh, in Denver, the Air Personnel Reserve Center's got DD Form 14s, the discharge papers, stored there. The VA has information on um, personnel. So if your records did, in fact, burn up in, in St. Louis, there are other ways to reconstruct them. And, and I was told the moment I got in, the, from the moment I got into the Army in 1967, so I, I, I say that because I really don't want to tell people how old I am, but I, I was in the Army in 1967. Uh, it, it means that Willingham and my careers overlapped, and we were told repeatedly, make copies of everything, save copies of everything, because there may come a time when you're going to need those to prove your service, and it'll, it'll be to your benefit. Willingham alleges he doesn't have any of those, those documents. Uh, and we can't find them in any of the other locations they should be. But, it, but he says he retired in 1973, and if that's true, his records weren't in St. Louis when the fire broke out. So Del Rio, Texas UFO crash, most likely then a hoax. I believe it's a hoax because the, the one witness that, that, that everybody believed was not an Air Force colonel, 
was not an Air Force pilot, and his story has changed significantly from his very first telling of it in 1968, and I found that to what he says today. Well, I think uh, it's important that you include those uh, in the book and uh, that you go to, you know, the effort of researching these and then making that conclusion uh, because it just gives the other ones more credibility uh, that that actually turn out to have some merit. So I'm glad that you include the hoaxes in there and, uh, and, uh, you know, conduct the research in in that manner. All right, we'll come back and uh, continue to discuss... UFOs that fall from the sky with Kevin Randall here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Next week on the program... Survivalist uh, Phil Hogue will be here. He's built an underground shelter at something like 7,000 square feet. Uh, and uh, he can, you know, he will talk to us about how to prepare for a long term emergency, some sort of a catastrophic event. Uh, but even, you know, if there's some sort of a power interruption uh, for 48, 72 hours, it's all valuable information. You don't have to wait around for winter solstice 2012 or some nuclear conflagration to, uh, you know, to take precautions, something that everybody should uh, look uh, look towards. Uh, Kevin Randall is uh, with us as we continue to discuss, to discuss uh, UFOs that uh, fell from the sky. His new book is Crash, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and uh, Cover-Ups. Uh, we mentioned Shag Harbor earlier, and it might be a good opportunity now to return uh, to Shag Harbor because I find uh, it interesting, again, talking about disclosure and the, the manner in which certain uh, uh, governments try to keep a lid on these things. And uh, in this incident, I mean, there's, I mean you, you look at this one as one of the, more, the most credible, perhaps, in terms of UFO crash uh, sightings. And, and that is just the available information, uh, you know, from RCMP documents, etc. Uh, did you find it, or do you find it generally far easier to, to, to get access to information uh, out of Canada than elsewhere? Uh, well, it's very easy for me because I got it from Don Ledger and Chris Stiles. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have a lot of luck with it. They had... Uh, a, quite a bit of trouble getting the documentation they wanted. Some of it was misfiled. Some of it had been checked out improperly. Uh, some of it they were told they couldn't have, and they had to go back with their uh, reports again and again, trying to get the information that they needed. So for for me to get the information from them was very, very simple. It was, it was very difficult for them. Uh, and, and, and in the United States is the Freedom of Information Act. And everybody says, well, you got the Freedom of Information Act. But it falls apart. All they got to do is say national security, and, and you're all done. You, then you have to file suit, and that costs a lot of money. The other thing about freedom of information in the United States, it is by law they have to respond to you within 10 working days. It may have been changed to 15 now, but within 10 working days. And the response can be, uh, we have your request, and we're working on it as fast as we can. They've responded within 10 days. They haven't told you a darn thing you need. And I've waited two and three years for some of the information to uh, finally arrive. So um, 
these things help, but they're not they're not the um, the talisman that people think, seem to think they are. Is there one uh, sort of for you a Rosetta Stone? One uh, particular document uh, that you'd really like to get your hands on, one artifact, one uh, interview with an eyewitness that has eluded you. Uh, is there one particular piece of evidence that you're really working t- towards getting, and it just it just never seems to happen? What I the, what I've been working for is when in 1995 the Air Force decided to reinvest the Roswell case. I was trying to get the documents from the Secretary of the Air Force, who said to do this, and her communications with the officers she put in charge, the minutes of the meetings they may have held, the discussions they may have held, um, what orders she had given them, what reports they provided to her, all the documentation you'd expect from something like this. And I spent two years chasing this stuff. The first time I sent it, they said, well, we don't have that filed here. It all went to the government printing office, which I knew was a load of crap. You don't send those sorts of sensitive information to the government printing office. But I had to file a request with them so that I would know what was there, and I could say, no, this isn't the stuff. Uh, they said, well, no, then we sent it to Maxwell Air Force Base. I went to uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. They said, no, we don't have it. We sent it to the National Archives in Washington went to the White National Archives in Washington and said, no, we don't have it, it's at Maxwell. And I said, Maxwell says you've got it and it arrived here on this date. And they finally wrote back and said, yes, we have it. We need time to sort through it before we can tell you what we have. They eventually sent me 11 pages of inventory of what they had, and what it turned out was they had the product generated by the investigation, not the stuff I wanted. I knew what the the investigation had produced because a lot of it was published by the Air Force. So that whole thing took took a couple of years, took three years to do. I still don't have the information. Uh, I don't know where it is. All I can do is start the process over again and see if somebody will slip up and send me what I want. There are a lot of uh, UFO researchers uh, that are pinning their hopes on the Obama administration in terms of uh, disclosure. Uh, people like uh, uh, Stephen Bassett, who holds the X Conference every year. Do you have any uh, any cause for optimism that uh, that that disclosure, formal disclosure, could happen uh, during Obama's first or second term, if there is one? No, I can't see it. Uh, once again, I don't think he's that concerned about it. He's got a lot of other um, problems to worry about. But we we have this all the time. Uh, Bill Clinton was supposed to let us all know what was going on. Jimmy Carter, in his campaign, said he was going to get to the bottom of the UFO stuff um, because he'd seen one himself. So the fact that Obama has, has, has moved into the White House doesn't seem to, to do anything about it. And it seems in certain arenas the Obama administration is much less transparent than the Bush administration had been. So, I mean, each each White House brings, or each president brings his own person out of the White House, and I just don't see that happening. We've been discussing the possibility of disclosure since uh, uh, 1950 when when um, Robert Weiss did The Day the Earth Stood Still, and everybody thought this is the first salvo in the, dis- the disclosure project. And here we are 
60 years later, still talking about the possibility of disclosure. And one of the problems disclosure has is they don't vet their witnesses properly, and they get some people in there who are not telling the truth, or they, they get cases in there that have already been solved, and the solutions are well known. Uh, is there anyone that has come forward as part of the disclosure project that has been held up as sort of a credible witness that you'd like to discuss that, that you believe is not? <laughs> there, are, there are any number of those people. What, the, the best example, which doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, is there was, there's an Air Force lieutenant colonel who said that when he was working in the communication center, he saw documents come through talking about a, a crash of a, of a spacecraft near Spitsbergen Island. True story. I know the documents came through. I've seen them. They're part of the Project Blue Book files. So he's telling the absolute truth, but if, if, if he had been properly vetted, they'd say, yes, thank you very much, Colonel. Unfortunately, the documents you saw are of what is now a well-known hoax. And so that's, that sort of typifies the problems that, that the orbit the uh, disclosure project. Do you think that uh, in these cases that there could be uh, some, uh, uh, I don't know, some sort of a PSYOP uh, in, involved, uh, or whether, in other words, these individuals have been uh, uh, put forward uh, by Majestic or some other group in order to discredit the whole uh, UFO issue, or are these people simply uh, seeking uh, fame, publicity? I'm afraid that it's, that it's the mundane. It's, it's people seeking the spotlight and publicity, and this is one way that they're able to do it. And I often kind of joke about the, 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 the oversight committee, whatever it might be, uh, the guy coming forward and said, yeah, see this guy out here, you yapping about that? That's, that's my guy. I invented that guy. Uh, somebody, you know, telling a wild story and, and the oversight committee people taking credit for this stuff because uh, it makes them look good and everybody knows what the truth is. I just, I just see it as more of the ufologist taking, uh, um, m making it hard on themselves. And I'll, I'll even give you a good example. It would be Frank Hoffman. I believe Frank Hoffman was telling the truth. I mean, he told marvelous stories. If what he said was true, he was on the inside. He gave us good information, and we would be able to move forward. Frank Hoffman turned out to be making the thing up from the word go. Um, I, and, and I don't know what his motivation was. I do know he made money on the deal. I do know that he was interviewed on national TV, something that would have never happened had he not been telling these stories. So there's, there's those sorts of problems, and those people come forward. And you, you might think that it's sort of just a, a, a very rare phenomenon, but uh, here in the States we've been, we've been dealing with something called stolen valor, which are people claiming um, ex exploits in combat, uh, the awarding of very high medals when we find out that they may not have um, been in combat in Vietnam, for example. They may not have been in Vietnam, and in some very egregious cases, they weren't even in the military. In the 1990 census in the United States, they asked if you were a Vietnam veteran. 
there's, there's like two and a half million of us, two and a half million Vietnam veterans. Thirteen million people said they were. What, what do you gain by lying on the census form that you're a Vietnam veteran, and yet uh, like three or four times the number of real Vietnam veterans uh, people claim, claim to be? So it's a phenomenon that sort of permeates our, our whole society, and people become famous for being famous. Uh, and, and it presents a problem with the study of UFOs because you have to separate the people who are just clamoring for the spotlight from, from those who have a good, credible story that you need, you, you, you need to, to investigate. What do you uh, believe the, the, the true nature of uh, the, uh, the secrecy is, is all about? Is it, is it free energy? Is it um, uh, the, the nature of this technology that perhaps has been um, back-engineered is, is so sensitive that they can't release it? Is it uh, they're afraid of some sort of a, a, a panic in the streets? What, why are they keeping a lid on this? That's, a, that, that's the one question that's almost impossible to answer, because I really don't know why. I would think if it was free energy, they would be, they would be developing that. Give it to some corporation says, figure out a way to make some money on this. And especially with the oil gushing into the Gulf of Mexico, this thing would, t- would move to the forefront. I suspect what's happened is in 1947... They didn't know what they had. They weren't sure what they had. They weren't sure what they could make of it. And they needed an opportunity to investigate it secretly without having to worry about our competitors in the world, the Soviets. I'd say the Canadians, but they're probably our good friends. Uh, That was just a little humor. (laughs) Rest assured, (laughs) we are your good friends. Apparently way too little. uh, But have an opportunity to understand and exploit this thing without... Uh, worrying about our competitors, and I'm sure we'd, we'd share it with the Canadians. Let's hope. We've just come out <laughs> of a disastrous war. I think that the government felt they needed a chance to find out what was going on and make sure this wasn't invaders from another world, making sure that we weren't about to be invaded and, and, and sucked into another global conflict. And as time passed, they realized the likelihood of that was less and less. So I, I think in 1947 it makes perfect sense got to find out what's going on. Why does it persist today? I suspect it persists today because they haven't figured it out, that the technology was so far be- advanced beyond where we are today that they were unable to, to figure out much of it. They may have gotten some ideas about um, shaping the aircraft for stealth, and they may have gotten some ideas for composite materials based on what they saw. But I always say it may be like taking a power pack, a VCR, and a television back to Merlin the Magician, and you show him a black ribbon, and if you know the secrets, you can get pictures and sound, color pictures and sound. But you have to understand two things that are invisible to do so, magnetism and electricity, and that would limit what you could do to understand it. And I think the technology... If you've, if you've developed a technology to cross interstellar space, you're probably decades ahead of us, if not centuries ahead of us, and we may not be able to understand your technology yet. We, we, we'll, we'll get there, but we may not understand how this stuff works yet, and until we do, they want to keep it secret. What about uh, uh, crashes or the disappearance or crashes of 
military uh, jets who have perhaps engaged a UFO. I mean, there's something that we don't hear about. There, there are, you know, scores of uh, pilots that were reported missing in uh, in the various wars of the last uh, uh, 40 or 50 years. I'm wondering whether you have any idea what percentage of those may have, in fact, uh, been involved with some sort of, a, I don't know, a dogfight with a UFO. I mean, we have, of course, the Milton Torres example over the uh, the British Channel back in 1957. I mean, do you talk to, have you talked to pilots about uh, about this sort of thing? I haven't talked to pilots about it, but I've, I've come across the information. But, but the other problem we run into is that our espionage on the Soviet Union and their espionage uh, over North America also resulted in, in clashes between the airmen and the deaths of, of airmen. Uh, I, was, I was always talking about doing a book about those sorts of things because uh, a couple of hundred men and now a few women have died in these, these, these clashes between the um, then the Soviet Union and uh, and the NATO allies. So there's a lot there, there, there are those sorts of things going on, and there's there's this secret. You know, if if your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife or your grandfather, for crying out loud, was killed in one of these things, they say, well, it was an aircraft accident, and you don't know any different. We see some of it. There was the the navy the navy plane forced down in China. Uh, nobody was was killed or injured, but the plane was forced down. Now, what happened if that had taken a different tack and the plane had been forced down and it crashed? Well, then we we've lost another twenty um, sailors in that in that case. So there's that stuff going on all around. Uh, underwater, there were these games that were played by the submarines that resulted in the loss of some of the submarines. And, and, and so it's hard to determine if something is extraterrestrially involved or if it's the games that we're playing amongst the various governments. Well, Kevin, I congratulate you on uh, Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, A History of Famous Incidents, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, uh, over 100 books to date. What's next? I have been doing a book... And I, I, I didn't really plan on it, but it's a book that starts with uh, my uh, investigations as a teenager into UFOs and moves forward to um, the last few things that I've done. And I've just reached the part where I'm doing a lot of work on recapitulating how the Roswell investigation unfolded and what we learned and what we found out and how it collapsed and that sort of thing. Um, some of it collapsed, not all of it uh, collapsed. And so that's, that's kind of what it is. So it's, it's a, an in-depth look of how I got to the places I went. Well, I look forward to that, and um, I'll uh, look forward to a review copy, and we'll get you back on to discuss. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Kevin Randall, author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, a history of famous incidents, conspiracies, and uh, cover-ups. That's from New Page Books. We've got a few moments for some open lines when we come back. If you've got some spine-tingling tales, encounters with the paranormal, the supernatural, totally unexplainable, or you'd like to discuss anything that you've heard tonight on the program or in previous episodes of The Conspiracy Show, 
We'll make the phone lines available to you at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740. And toll free from Maine to Minnesota and Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And it was uh, great to meet uh, many of you Friday night at the Bloor Cinema here in Toronto for the theatrical premiere of United We Fall. This is a documentary about uh, North American Union, two young filmmakers who were on the show several weeks ago, Brian Law and uh, Dan Dix from Press for Truth. Uh, And uh, the Bloor Cinema holds about 800 uh, people. And I would say probably half-filled at, at, at least. So a great job, uh, Patrick uh, White from Conspiracy Culture, and um, uh, thank you for including me. I was uh, uh, honored to present the film along with Conspiracy Culture, and uh, my mother and uh, mother-in-law and sister and brother-in-law were there and for my theatrical premiere as I was featured in the documentary. So uh, great fun and uh, very well done, uh, Brian Law, Dan Dix. The... Uh, the, the interviews with people like uh, John Manley and uh, Alan Gottlieb and, and, and others, uh, very interesting how these individuals were quite willing to speak openly about how they were actually working behind the scenes uh, to bring about, if not a North American union, perhaps a, a North American community. Uh, although it's really, as far as I'm concerned, parsing terms, North American community, North American union... As far as I'm concerned, it all essentially leads to the dissolution of the uh, three nation states, Mexico, the United States, and uh, Canada. So uh, I got a chance to uh, to meet a good number of you and, uh, and uh, say hello. So uh, we'll hope to do more of that sort of thing in the future, presenting uh, documentaries and, and, and so forth. All right. Uh, interesting news out of Honolulu where a former Honolulu elections clerk says President Obama was definitely not born in Hawaii. This story just will not, will not go away. And uh, he claims he has no birth certificate from any hospital in the Aloha State, and he says he's willing to testify in court to those facts. The things I've said I don't mind testifying in court, says Tim Adams, the senior elections clerk for the city and the, and the county of Honolulu in the 2008 campaign. He told this in an exclusive interview with WorldNet Daily. I was working there, and this is what it was. I'm not a lawyer, just a civil servant. I know what I know. I know what I was told by the hospitals and my supervisors. Adams, a Hillary Clinton supporter, who who now teaches English at Western Kentucky University while he works on his master's degree, burst onto the scene last week in a World Net Daily story in which he asserted that Obama was not born in Hawaii as the White House claims and that a long-form hospital-generated birth certificate for Obama does not even exist there. There is no birth certificate, he said. It's like an open secret. There isn't one. Everyone in the government there knows this. He claims he had direct access to the Social Security database, the National Crime Computer, state driver's license information, international passport information, basically just about anything you can imagine to get someone's identity. He could look up what bank your home mortgage was in, 
and he was informed by his boss that we did not have a birth record for Obama. At the time, there was conflicting reports that Obama had been born at the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, as well as the Capiolani Medical Center for Women and Children across town, so Adam says his office checked with both facilities. They told us we don't have a birth certificate for him. They told his supervisor, either by phone or email, neither one has a document that a doctor signed off on saying that they were present at this man's birth. To date, no Hawaiian hospital has provided documented confirmation Obama was born at its facility. So, this uh, story just goes on and on and on. And, of course, a few weeks ago, there was a report that a birth or a registration of birth issued by a hospital in Kenya had been uncovered. And then, of course, as soon as that comes out, then someone else uh, claims that, of course, that it's a complete hoax. And uh, this story is like an onion. And my fear is that as we continue to peel back the layers... All we end up with are the layers, and there's no no center. Will we ever, in fact, find out the truth? People have been fired for looking into this. And uh, some people claim I was fired at another radio station for looking into this. We'll never know the truth about that one either. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. A few final notes before we... Dim the lights here, and uh, we're still open for business if you'd like to call in and discuss some spine-tingling tales. 416-360-0740 and 866-740-4740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Census officials in Indonesia say they believe a woman's claim that she was born in 1853. 1853, just to give you a sense. And this woman is alive. That would make her 157 years old. Again, census officials in Indonesia say they believe this woman is, in fact, 157 years old. 1853, to give you a sense. That was uh, when Giuseppe Verdi, uh, his um, La Traviata debuted in Venice. The Crimean War erupted. And San Francisco got its first street signs at intersections. They say, well, there's no authentic data to prove her age. But judging from her statements and the age of her adopted daughter, who is now 108, it's difficult to doubt it. Again, this is from Statistics Bureau official Johnny Sargiono. The only person verified to have lived past 120 uh, years of age was a French woman, Jean Calment, who died in 1997 at the age of 122. South Sumatran villager Tarina would be fully 35 years older than Kalment when she died, according to officials. Even more incredible, she still works around the house and has smoked clove cigarettes all her life. Despite her age, she has, no, she has an incredible memory, clear sight, and has no hearing problems. She speaks Dutch quite fluently, he said. 
He said that uh, Mrs. Tarina burned all her identification documents to avoid being linked to an alleged communist coup in 1965. 157 years old, can you imagine? My word. All right, I mentioned uh, earlier, and I just want to repeat, because I think this is a program you'll definitely want to listen to. Next week, that's Sunday, June 27th. How to survive a long-term emergency. I'll speak with a survivalist with 25 years' experience in emergency services. He's going to discuss how to prepare for and survive severe long-term catastrophic events such as nuclear attack, chemical and biological warfare, weather modification, and earth changes. He'll discuss shelter design, construction, radiation shielding, power systems, cooking fuel options, food and water, communication, medical considerations, and security. And uh, that's Phil Hogue, author of No Such Thing as Doomsday. All right, let's go to the phones. And uh, we're joined by Simone from Nixon, Illinois. Good morning, Simone. Hi. Um, I want to talk about the BP oil spill with you. Um, ever since this whole thing started, um, I keep wondering every day, what if um, this uh, this gushing doesn't stop. I mean, just doesn't. I mean, they keep saying uh, the magic month will be around December. Then it'll maybe we'll get you know we'll have some kind of problem solved then, or maybe you know it might be several months. But but what if it doesn't? Because um, think about it. We have arteries. If, if God forbid someone cut my neck or my my wrist, there's an artery there that will gush if you don't put a tourniquet somewhere it'll gush until you're dead and what if we struck one of the earth's arteries you know like in our neck or our wrist and it's gushing until it's you know i mean i never hear anyone in the media talk about the worst case scenario i keep thinking this thing is going to go and go and go i mean yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine it, it being much worse. I mean, this, uh, I would I, I would suggest that the the situation is now dire. Uh, I don't know about the the analogy to uh, an artery. I mean, I I don't necessarily uh, agree with that analogy. I don't look at the the you know the oil deposits beneath the Earth's crust in sort of that same manner. Uh, but uh, you're right. This could go on indefinitely. I mean, we certainly. Uh, we're not and, to, and, it, and if it does, um, what is going to be the ramifications for human beings? You know, um, besides wildlife, we've already seen, you know, all the deaths there. Well, uh, at the very least, uh, anyone who's making a living uh, from harvesting uh, uh, fish and shrimp and so forth uh, can forget about that uh, sure. for the next several hundred years, I would imagine. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, I, I shudder to think uh, as well, Simone. If this continues to go on, and and yeah, BP is certainly not want... uh, giving us a, a lot of confidence. Yeah, I think people don't want to think about what happens if it don't stop. It's it's like um, trying when you're young and vital, and someone tells you, think about your funeral arrangements, and you. I mean, I just don't want to, you know, just don't want to, and. I wish there'd be more discussion about what if this don't stop. It's hard and to imagine I, uh, BP. Uh, I 
I'll say this, uh, you know, quite honestly, I can't see BP surviving this. I really can't. Well, they oh, have been. Oh, sure. They'll, they, they'll go bankrupt. They'll go under. I mean, and Tony, that Tony guy who says he wants his life back. And, but a lot of the birds that died with the oil on them, they want their life back, too. But, you know, and so then he goes racing his yachts or looking at yachts. And, but I, I think he's in shock and, and in denial. I think it must be shock and denial for him to go to, you know, I think I'll go look at my yachts, you know, and watch them race or whatever. Well, shock but, um, and denial that, uh, you know, they were, um, I think, unfortunately, I think uh, it's more embarrassment. It should be absolute uh, shock and, and, and horror and self-loathing on their part, but uh, I, I think it's more to do with the embarrassment and, uh, you know, worried about how is this going to affect the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also wondering whether, you know, I I, um, I tend to, to, to look at these sorts of things as uh, almost a, uh, this there's a war going on backstage, and occasionally it sort of it spills out on the main stage. And whether there was certainly an element of uh, I don't know uh, polit- uh, a corporate sabotage going on here, whether this is one company going after another, or uh, who knows? Yeah, why did that? Um, why why did that damage happen in the first place? Why did it happen? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, if you if you look at the emails that were going on uh, back and forth, and the memos and so forth that have now come to light, uh, it, it, it looks like BP was cutting corners, obviously, and 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 didn't care about uh, safety regulations and 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 so forth. They just they just wanted to make a quick buck. Um, but I think there's more to it than that. Uh, I find the timing of the whole thing rather strange. Just a few months after uh, President Obama had approved. Uh, more offshore drilling uh, on the eastern seaboard. I think and I have a, a I have a horrible feeling that the situation is a lot worse than everyone is being told. You know, I I truly believe it. I agree with you, Simone, and I thank you for the call. Good to hear from Nixon, Illinois. All right, thanks for uh, joining us uh, tonight. Uh, my thanks to Kevin Randall, author of Crash: When UFOs Fall from the Sky. You can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook, fans of The Conspiracy Show. The website, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. This program will be posted in the past show audio archives in just a few days, so if you didn't get to hear all of it or you'd like to hear it again and again, and why wouldn't you? It'll be available for a download. My thanks to Dan Ellison for technical production. Talk to you next week. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.